Well, before I invite Eugene to share with us this morning, he has picked a scripture reading from Matthew 7 uh, to help prepare our hearts for what he'll be talking about. Um, So here are these words um, from the Gospel of Matthew. Beware of false prophets who come disguised as harmless sheep, but are really vicious wolves. You can identify them by their fruit, that is, by the way they act. Can you pick grapes from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? A good tree produces good fruit, and a bad tree produces bad fruit. So I invite Eugene up to share with us. All right. Good morning, brothers and sisters. Why don't we take a moment and just turn to our neighbor and say hello? Just, uh, yeah. It's good to see all of you. I want to give a special shout out, a call out to our youth and children. So let's, uh, Give them a little warm welcome just for this part of the service since they're not usually with us, right? So want to say hi to you guys. We usually dismiss you guys to your own spaces for teaching, but we want you to know that this is your space too. This chapel is your space as well. And so we're so happy to have you here for the whole service. Um, Since we don't usually get to spend the teaching time together, um, let me share with you a little detail about myself. And for those of you who hear me, Uh, Whenever I come up to preach, this will just be one of those little factoids you can file away about Eugene Kwan or maybe use against him in the future. (laughs) Before coming to PVCC, I was once a small-time YouTuber. I know, it's kind of weird to think, uh, but I guess everybody has a YouTube channel these days. But I was a small-time YouTuber. I I took down all my videos a couple of years ago, so you'll just have to believe me on that. (laughs) If you search for my name, this is what you get. Um, So... So how many people followed your channel, Eugene? Well, I'm glad you asked. At my peak, I had over 5,000 subscribers. And I was pretty proud of that number. I was pretty proud of it. But it's really nothing compared to what a few of my friends have been able to achieve with their own channels. One in particular currently has over 100,000 subscribers. Just doing product reviews, just uh, talking about things that he's bought. But let's be honest, let's be honest, and I say this without any jealousy at all, you know, in the world of social media influencers, even 100,000 isn't that big of a number, is it? Depending on the platform, 100,000 is just a drop in the bucket. Let me show you the top 10 biggest individual accounts on another social media platform, Instagram. Each person on this list, it may be a bit difficult to read, but trust me, each person on this list has enough followers to equal or exceed the population of an entire country. For example, Beyonce's followers, known as the Bayhive, number 261 million, which is just 11 million shy of the population of Indonesia. At 320 to 344 million followers each, The Rock, Dwayne Johnson, right? Selena Gomez, Lionel Messi, and Kylie Jenner each have around as many followers as there are people living in the United States. And Cristiano Ronaldo, any soccer fans out here? 
No? Okay, that's okay. <laughs> With 450 million followers, it would only take about three of him to equal the entire population of China, the most populated country in the world. I mean, it's a crazy thought, isn't it? It's a crazy thought that a single person could have a place in the lives of so many people. But that's the world that we live in today. A world of influencers and platforms, a world of celebrities, content creators, followers, and subscribers. It's a world that poses some interesting challenges for following the way of Christ. And that is the overall focus of this series of sermons in Colossians. As people seeking to be centered on Christ, how do we follow the way of Christ? It turns out that continuing on the way of Christ requires us to be thoughtful about who we listen to, whose opinions we value, whose influence we embrace. Let's unpack this thought as we get into our passage. Colossians 1, 24 to 2, 5. At the end of the passage that we looked at last Sunday, in the final words of verse 23, Paul turned his attention from the Colossian Christians to himself. Continue in the faith, he wrote, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. Well, why turn the focus to himself? Well, Paul had at least two reasons for doing this. First, the Colossian Christians did not know Paul personally. Paul's colleague, Epaphras, was the one who planted their church. So it makes sense that Paul would want to introduce himself a bit and show the Colossians how much he cared for them. Second, and perhaps more importantly, the Colossian Christians were having a hard time knowing who to trust. The city of Colossae was home to a wide variety of cultures and perspectives and religions. And while that probably made for an amazing food scene in downtown Colossae, it also meant that there were many different voices, many different influencers calling for the Colossians' attention. Now, we like to think of social media influencers as a 21st century invention, a 21st century phenomenon. But the truth is that influencers have always been around. Maybe they didn't have TikTok or Instagram or Twitter or Facebook, but they did have town halls and city squares and auditoriums and street corners. Being an influencer could be a full-time job, even back then, if you found the right sponsors, and of course, if you found enough people to come and listen to you. Like the rest of the people living in Colossae, the Colossian Christians were targets for influencers who offered advice on anything from how to understand the world to how to live in it, and even how to approach God. We'll learn more about these influencers when we get to the end of Colossians chapter 2, but at this point, it's enough for us to recognize that their message did not align with the gospel of Christ, and neither did the way that they lived. Paul's lifestyle, however, was so similar to Christ's own lifestyle that it became evidence for why anyone following the way of Christ should trust what he had to say. So how did Paul live and work? That's the main topic of 124 to 25. So let's hear what he had written about it in those verses. I'm going to just read through them all. This is not something I usually do, but I'd like for you to hear it in its entirety. At least mostly. You'll see. I'm glad when I suffer for you in my body, wrote Paul, for I am participating in the sufferings of Christ that continue for his body, the church. 
God has given me the responsibility of serving his church by proclaiming his entire message to you. So we tell others about Christ, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom, all the wisdom God has given us. We want to present them to God, perfect in their relationship to Christ. That's why I work and struggle so hard depending on Christ's mighty power that works within me. I want you to know how much I have agonized for you and for the church at Laodicea and for many other believers who have never met me personally, for them to be encouraged and knit together by strong ties of love. I'm telling you this so no one will deceive you with well-crafted arguments, for though I am far away from you, I am with you in spirit, and I rejoice that you are living as you should and that your faith in Christ is strong." You might have noticed that I skipped some verses uh, while reading through this passage. You know, God willing, we will take a look at those verses next week when we begin talking about the message Christ gave Paul to share as his apostle, as his representative. The verses we just read, however, are about the messenger himself, and they reveal how Paul approached being an apostle. As an apostle, it turns out that Paul pursued three main goals— And the first goal was education. Paul worked to educate the people of God in the gospel of Christ. He worked to help people understand who Christ is and what Christ had done for them. This was his point in verses 25 and 28. God has given me the responsibility of serving his church by proclaiming his entire message to you. So we tell others about Christ, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all the wisdom God has given us. Education was, of course, one of Christ's own goals during his ministry on earth. He made this clear, for example, to the people of Capernaum in Luke chapter 4 in response to them begging him to stay with them. I must preach, the Lord said. I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God in other towns too because that is why I was sent. Just as Christ was committed to teaching others about himself and the good news that he brought with him, so Paul's goal was to educate the people of God in the gospel of Christ. But Paul wasn't content with just educating God's people. He wanted to help them become more like Christ in the way they lived. In other words, Paul's second goal was the goal of formation. Verse 28 of our passage We want to present them to God perfect in their relationship to Christ. Now, the word translated as perfect here in the New Living Translation might be better translated as mature or complete or full-grown. Paul's goal was for the people of God not just to know more about God, but to grow up in God, to allow the truth of God to change the way they think, the way they feel, the way they act. Paul hoped to present those he pastored to God as people who had been transformed by the relationship with Christ. This was another thing Paul had in common with Christ. Christ's goal on earth wasn't just to tell people about himself, but to actually help them change and grow as God's people. Christ's goal was to make disciples who imitated him, not just students who knew facts about him. And he passed that goal onto his disciples in Matthew 28, 19 and 20. Therefore, go and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Teach these new disciples to obey all the commands I have given you. 
Just as Christ was committed to transformation through discipleship, so Paul's goal was to help form the people of God to be more like Christ. And that led to Paul's third goal, communion. Paul worked to help the people of God to be united in community with one another. This was Paul's point in verse 2 of chapter 2. Paul worked for believers to be encouraged and knit together by strong ties of love. Paul understood that becoming a member of God's people was like joining a new family. At times, he even described God's people as members of a single, united body. Paul wanted to help believers live out this truth. And this was yet another thing Paul shared with Christ. In his final recorded prayer for his disciples before going to the cross, Christ prayed for unity. John 17, 20 and 21. I am praying not only for these disciples, but for all who will ever believe in me through their message. I pray that they will all be one, just as you and I are one. As you are in me, Father, and I am in you. Being united in communion was one of Christ's ultimate goals for his people, and so it was for Paul. So let's summarize. Paul's goals were to help God's people understand the gospel of Christ, to help them be formed into the likeness of Christ, and to help them love one another as members of the body of Christ. Paul was committed to the education, the formation, and the communion of God's people. But really the biggest takeaway for me from these verses is that Paul's goals aligned with Christ's goals. What Christ wanted for God's people was what Paul wanted for God's people. What Christ worked for, Paul worked for. And not only that, but we also see that Paul was willing to work for these goals in the same way that Christ was willing to work for them, through self-denying love. This is what we see in the rest of the verses in our passage. You might remember that Paul started off our passage celebrating his suffering. Verse 24, I am glad, he said, I am glad when I suffer for you in my body, for I am participating in the sufferings of Christ that continue for his body, the church. As you know from other parts of the New Testament, Paul suffered quite a bit because he was an apostle of Christ. Being an apostle of Christ meant preaching and teaching the gospel of Christ, so Paul was persecuted almost everywhere he went by those who didn't follow Christ. He was thrown in jail, beaten up, and even put on trial many, many times. And being an apostle wasn't exactly a paid full-time job, so Paul wasn't always sure where his next meal was going to come from or how he would afford to pay for his basic necessities. And being an apostle of Christ required him to visit many churches all over the Roman Empire. So Paul had to risk the dangers of traveling in the ancient world. In fact, he was in three different shipwrecks while sailing across the Mediterranean Sea. And yet, when he thought back on those sufferings, Paul celebrated. I am glad when I suffer for you in my body. Why? because he knew his sufferings had a purpose. For I am participating, he wrote, in the sufferings of Christ that continue for his body. Well, actually what he wrote was, I am completing the unfinished sufferings of Christ. 
In other words, Paul saw himself as continuing the work that Christ had left unfinished, the work of spreading the gospel to people outside of Israel and Judea. Paul saw his sufferings as a continuation of Christ's sufferings, the sufferings Christ was willing to endure if it meant people could hear the good news. And when he imagined himself following in Christ's footsteps, even the painful ones, it filled Paul with joy and hope and strength to keep on going. As Paul wrote in verse 29, that's why I work and struggle so hard depending on Christ's mighty power that works within me. Paul was willing to serve God's people even if it meant suffering at times because he felt Christ's mighty power giving him strength to continue. Well, what was this mighty power that strengthened Paul to endure? It was the hope of the gospel. You see, brothers and sisters, Christ was able to endure his sufferings because of the hope he had in God's promises. Remember what the author of Hebrews wrote about Christ in Hebrews 12, 2. Because of the joy awaiting him, he endured the cross, disregarding its shame. Now he is seated in the place of honor beside God's throne. Christ could endure the suffering of the cross because he knew the joy awaiting him on the other side. Paul was motivated by the same hope, the same joy, the same promises of God, and he knew they would be his eventually so he could endure sufferings temporarily. That's why he wrote what he did in verse one of chapter two of our passage. I want you to know how much I have agonized for you and for the church in Laodicea and for many other believers who have never met me personally. Paul wasn't looking for pity or trying to guilt the Colossians into giving him their loyalty. No, Paul wanted them to hear echoes of Christ in the way he lived. And this was Paul's ultimate answer to the Colossian believer's question. When it comes to how we should live our lives, when it comes to how we should approach God, who should we follow? Paul's implied answer was that they should follow and embrace the influence of those whose lives align with Christ's. If following Christ is their goal, then they should listen to those who follow Christ. If following the way of Christ is what they want to do, then they should pay attention to the lives of those who follow Christ, those who pursue the same goals as Christ pursued, those who demonstrate the same self-denying love as Christ demonstrated. Someone, for example, like Paul. You see, brothers and sisters, Paul was a trustworthy apostle of Christ. He was a faithful representative of Christ. And it wasn't because he was a great speaker. It wasn't because of his miracles. It wasn't because he was so impressive or so successful or so accomplished. No, Paul was a trustworthy apostle of Christ because his lifestyle matched Christ's lifestyle. They shared the same goals. They shared the same pursuits and they shared the same willingness to suffer for those if that's what love required. They weren't self-abusers, they weren't going looking for suffering, but they were willing to put the needs of, those bef- of others before their own comfort and success if that's what God asked of them. And when God asked that of Christ, when Christ died for his people, he died without any sponsors. 
He died with only a handful of followers. He died with no money and with no house, with no visible success. And the same could be said for Paul. He had planted churches, but even the ones he planted often questioned him. Go check out First and Second Corinthians or Galatians when you get a chance. But even the ones he planted, they questioned him. He had no money. He had no home until he was jailed in one. By any measure, neither he nor Christ were successful influencers in their time. But brothers and sisters, they didn't care. They didn't care about follower counts or subscription numbers or corporate sponsorships or being idolized by people drooling over their success. No. What mattered to them was the education, formation, and communion of God's people. What mattered to them was God's people's spiritual growth. And they were willing to suffer if that meant that God's people could grow. And this is why Paul could present himself as a trustworthy influence in the lives of the Colossian believers. It's not that Paul was perfect. No, the book of Acts, in my view, makes it clear that Paul had some things to work out in his own sanctification. And it's not that Paul always said the right thing either. I mean, his letter to the Laodiceans, they never made it into the Bible. But as far as his goals and the way he pursued them reflected Christ, he could be trusted and his influence was safe. He could write the kind of thing he wrote to the Philippian believers in Philippians 3.17. Dear brothers and sisters, pattern your lives after mine and learn from those who follow our example. I mean, what a bold thing to write. Can you imagine writing something like that to a friend? And yet because his goals and methods were the same as Christ's, he could call people to follow his example. And this once again echoes something Christ himself said, something Becca read for us, Matthew 7, 15 through 17. Beware of false prophets who come disguised as harmless sheep, but are really ravenous wolves, vicious wolves. You can identify them by their fruit, that is by the way they act. Can you pick grapes from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? A good tree produces good fruit and a bad tree produces bad fruit. Christ warned his hearers that there are many false prophets out there, many wolves in sheep's clothing, many untrustworthy influencers. So how do you tell which ones are worth following? By their fruit, that is, by the way they act. Just as a tree's goodness is known by its fruit, so an influencer's character reveals their trustworthiness. Do they share the same goals as Christ? And do they pursue their, those goals with a willingness to suffer to meet the needs of others? To ask it another way, are they willing to sacrifice their ego if it means others get to grow? Are they willing to sacrifice their chances at worldly success? Can they let go of their grip on power, on their grip on the company or the organization or the church that they lead? Are they willing to disappear are they willing to be overlooked if necessary, if God asks them for a time to be for the sake of someone else's growth? Are they secure enough in God's love for them and the hope promised to them and the joy set before them to endure the cross they are being called to carry? 
Have they shown Christ-likeness, not just on stage or at the pulpit or in a commercial, but also in their actual relationships, in the way they treat their enemies, not just from far away, but up close and personal? Brothers and sisters, there are so many would-be influencers in the world today. There are so many people and organizations and corporations and institutions who want to grow their platforms and broaden their reach, and they want to use us to do it. This is the world in the age of the algorithm, where culture is shaped by social media and discourse is driven by ad revenue from telling jokes to posting funny dances to reviewing pocket knives to telling us who we should vote for at the ballot box. Influencers are absolutely everywhere fighting for our follows. And again, this is nothing new. Influencers have always been around. And in some ways, I don't even think it's necessarily a bad thing. I have found the influence of others to be helpful when it comes to many of my hobbies and interests and responsibilities, and I'm sure that you have too. But when it comes to how we should live our lives and how we should approach God, how we should view the world, how we should see ourselves in a world as full of influencers as ours, it can be difficult to tell who we should be following whose influence should we embrace? Well, the simple answer, of course, is Christ's, right? We should follow Christ's influence. But our passage reminds us that we should also be on the lookout for the influence of those who follow in Christ's footsteps, those whose goals and lifestyles point us back to Christ. Why not Christ's alone? Well, because we live 2,000 years after and half a planet away from Christ's earthly ministry. And so sometimes we need other people to show us what following Christ looks like in the present. We need to figure that out together. Sometimes we need educators, teachers. Sometimes we need mentors to help form us. Sometimes we need others to commune with, to do life with. And so we follow the influence of Christ, but we often receive that influence through fellow followers of Christ. And let me put one more layer on this. Oftentimes, the best influence comes from those who have followed Christ for longer than we have or in different ways than we have. It's tempting to stay within within our peer groups, and this is not just for youth. This is for every stage of our lives. It's tempting to stay within our peer groups. It's comfortable and safe when everyone around us is the same as us wearing the same clothes and watching the same shows and asking the same questions. It's comfortable and safe, and we need that too. We need those spaces as well. But if that's all we have, it can really limit us. It can keep us from taking the next step in our spiritual growth. Staying with our peer groups, in groups and comfort zones, that can dull our Christian imaginations until we can't even picture what it would mean to follow Christ in a different life stage or in a different context. And at that point, we're no longer following the way of Christ. We've stopped moving altogether. But we have to ask at this point, is it safe to follow everyone who calls himself a follower of Christ? Unfortunately, no. It isn't always safe. Because not everyone who calls Christ Lord actually follows him. The passage after Matthew 7, 15 through 17 has Christ giving this warning. Not everyone who calls out to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. Only those who actually do the will of my Father in heaven will enter. 
On judgment day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, we prophesied in your name and cast out demons in your name and performed many miracles in your name, but I will reply, I never knew you. Get away from me, you who break God's laws. Not everyone who claims to follow Christ actually does, brothers and sisters. They might have the right theology. I mean, these people might call him Lord and they would be right to do so. And they might even have impressive abilities. You know, we prophesied, we cast out demons, we performed many miracles. But none of that matters if they aren't aligned with Christ in his goals and in his self-denying love. This has been brought to the foreground in recent events within the American church. As many of you might have heard, a couple of weeks ago, the Southern Baptist Convention, the world's largest denomination of Baptist churches, they announced the results of a multi-year, multi-million dollar study into the question of whether or not the SBC was giving enough support to victims of abuse within its churches. The study was performed by a third-party organization called Guidepost Solutions, and the results are, as Russell Moore put it in his article in Christianity Today, apocalyptic. The investigation revealed layer after layer after layer of systemic oppression and suppression of victims' voices, and case after case after case of manipulation and oppression of women and men who had been sexually, physically, emotionally, and spiritually abused. Guidepost Solutions found that time and time and time again, the leaders of the SBC prioritized the reputation of the denomination and its presidents over the welfare of its members. They paid lip service to pursuing Christ's goals and to pursuing them his way, but that's all it was. Lip service, empty words. Brothers and sisters, this is not the way of Christ. Character matters. Christ-likeness matters. If we are looking for help to follow the way of Christ, Christ-like character is at the top of the list of qualifications. We should not accept the influence of those whose life, we should only accept the influence of those whose lifestyles demonstrate that they are following Christ as well. Paul closed this passage on this very note in verses 4 and 5 of chapter 2. I am telling you this so no one will deceive you with well-crafted arguments. For though I am far away from you, I am with you in spirit. And I rejoice that you are living as you should and that your faith in Christ is strong. There were plenty of influencers with clever arguments hunting the Colossians for follows. And they are still around today in different forms and with different arguments and opinions, but the same temptation to go a different way than the way of Christ. And Paul said, avoid them. Christ warned, you shall know them by their fruit. So whose influence do we accept, brothers and sisters? When it comes to how we should live, what we should value, and how we engage with the world and ourselves, whose influence do we receive? When it comes to the teaching of God's word, our formation in Christ-likeness, and the way we show love to one another, whose influence do we embrace, and do we see Christ in them? Do we see Christ in them? Now, to be clear, I'm not saying that we should never listen to what non-Christians have to say. Non-Christians aren't wrong about everything. 
And there is much to be learned, much that must be learned from our non-Christian neighbors and thinkers and writers and singers and leaders and yes, influencers. But when it comes to the way we live our lives and how we approach God, should we not look to Christ and those who follow him? In matters of science, I will ask the scientist. In matters of math, I will ask the mathematician. In matters of art, I will ask the artist in music, the musician in basketball, Steph Curry. (laughs) But when it comes to the way of Christ, I will ask Christ and those in whom I can see Christ clearly. And that may or may not include Steph Curry, I'm not sure. And we see Christ in Paul, though, of that I am sure, as well as in all the apostles of the New Testament. So let's allow their example to shape our expectations, to shape what we value in our leaders, in the people we allow to influence us in the important stuff of life and God. Let's resist the impulse to follow people based on their results, based on their obvious apparent worldly success. Let's resist that impulse, because brothers and sisters, that is not often in alignment with the will of God. Let's pray for our leaders, the leaders that we do have, that they would be more and more aligned with Christ and his goals and his self-denying love. Let me just put it plainly, please pray for me. Pray for me and for all the pastors of PBCC that the Spirit would continue his work to teach us and to form us and to plant us in communities of honesty and accountability. Brothers and sisters, that passage from Matthew 7, that keeps me up at night. It keeps me up at night to think that I could stand before the Lord of all reality and tell him, Lord, Lord, and he would look at me and say, but Eugene, you never knew me. And I can tell by the way you lived. I can tell by the way you loved your kids. I can tell by the way that you served your neighbor. I can tell by the way you were unwilling to serve your neighbor. That keeps me up at night, brothers and sisters. So I beg you, pray for me. Pray, pray, pray that I, that I know the Lord, that I see him, and that my heart is stitched to his will and his purposes and his way of living. I'm not there yet. But pray for me. Pray for all your leaders. Ask and seek and look into their lives. It's the only way we can be safe. Pray that we will become leaders who reflect the goals and methods of Christ. And and let's pray, not just for our leaders, but that we would be able to learn from one another. Every part of the body, learning and growing from every part of the body. We need one another's Christ-like influence in our lives. We need each other. This is part of what we affirm when we observe communion each time we do so. Part of the meaning of the Lord's Supper to which we now come. In communion, we are not only affirming our commitment to Christ and receiving a reminder of his grace towards us, his love for us, his commitment to us, but we are also reaffirming our commitment to one another. It's not a coincidence that Jesus met with all his disciples together around the same loaf and around the same cup. It wasn't just efficiency. It wasn't just budget keeping. but he wanted to bring all of his people around himself 
and have them look at each other and know each other and walk with one another on this way of Christ. That's at least a big part of what we're affirming in communion, and that's what I wanna encourage your mind towards today. Of all the other things that might be on your heart that the Lord might be telling you, I encourage you to see your time at the table today as a communal activity, something that brings us in communion with God and with one another. Well, brothers and sisters, if you would like to receive prayer after today's service, you can come up to your left over here in the front. There'll be some people to meet you and receive you in prayer. But now let's receive this benediction. As you go from this place, as you make your way through this world, may God so empower you to follow the way of Christ. May he open the ears of your heart to hear the voice of Christ in those positive and supportive and helpful influences that you need to see him more clearly. Go in the peace of God, be well.